0: Why are you a member of Eden Baptist Church? Why do you identify and gather with this assembly? Perhaps no two of us would offer exactly the same list of answers. There's a lot of things that bring us here. Some of you, in fact, visit with us today. But we come for different reasons. There are different things that we would all list as that which draws us to this assembly. But one reason we should all offer, for those that are members of this assembly, one reason that we should all offer is that Eden Baptist Church is contributing to my salvation. Now on the face of it, at first blush, that may sound like false doctrine. It doesn't sound very biblical to our biblically trained ears. We indeed differ with the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox communions who believe that the church is in the possession of a treasury of merits. From this treasury, the church dispenses saving grace to people who participate in the sacraments that the church alone is authorized to administer. And so justification in these communions is an ongoing process. You're never justified here. It is something you may attain someday. There is no past tense to salvation in such constructs. The Reformed tradition that rose up in opposition to this very idea objects and says that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Our salvation is a gift from God, not merit that we can earn from the church. God justifies us. God declares us righteous, imputing the righteousness of Jesus to our account as we trust Him for salvation. However, the New Testament, as we know, speaks of salvation not only in past terms we have been saved, but also in present terms we are being saved. As a church, we're memorizing 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and there's that very phrase that is there in that passage, to those who are being saved. And we know that salvation as well has that future aspect, I will be saved. All of these are true and are biblical themes. If you are born again and you identify with Eden Baptist Church, this church was created and designed by God to contribute to your ongoing salvation. Understood in the right sense of the word, God has ordained the ministry of Eden Baptist Church to save you from hell. If that doesn't fit with our thinking and our theology, then we need to adjust our theology. Because that's exactly what the local church is. This realization holds profound implications for the way a local church should be serviced by her spiritual leaders. If you model the local church after a business or after a political interest group, if you model the local church after a humanitarian agency or the like, your view of pastoral leadership will naturally correspond to that model. You will expect a certain thing from the leadership of the church. You will expect the church to operate in a particular way. The two go together. But if the local church is the family of God, regenerated by His Spirit as people respond in saving faith to God's Word, then a pastor's work must correspond to that reality. And this is precisely the Apostle Paul's burden as he instructs his understudy Timothy on exercising leadership of the local church at Ephesus. Remember chapter 3 and verse 14 of 1 Timothy, where we read, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, 3.15, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church is the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. As we come to chapter 4 and verse 11 and following then today, the apostle now points the finger of instruction right at Timothy's chest. And he explains pointedly what Timothy must do to exercise his pastoral ministry within that family of God. Timothy was an apostolic delegate. He was temporarily assigned to the church at Ephesus, and thus he occupied what we could call a very unique position in the ancient church. There is not a direct parallel to anything that we see today in Timothy's actual function. However, the nature of the spiritual watch care that he was called to provide is directly applicable today because the nature of the church has not changed. It's the same church, it's doing the same thing. And so, as Timothy gave spiritual leadership to that assembly, so we find application within the local church today for its function and particularly for its pastoral leadership. In verses 11 through 16, the Spirit teaches us that a local church pastor then should first of all issue authoritative moral direction. Understanding what the church is, understanding what God is up to in putting the church together, this should follow. Verse 11, command and teach these things. The local church pastor should issue authoritative moral direction. What are these things? Probably refers to the entire book, certainly to the immediate context, but probably to the context of the book itself. Remember back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Timothy is dealing with false doctrine. There are those who are teaching wrong things. They're not the truth. They're interesting. They're intriguing people, but they're not the truth. So, chapter 1, verse 3, he urges him to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. We've been given life by the living God. We are to live a life of love. We're not to give ourselves to this minutia of biblical examination. Leads to nothing but speculation. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, The Spirit says that in the last times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Here's his context. Verse 6 of chapter 4, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. So putting this all together, understanding what the church is, the pastoral leadership should issue authoritative moral direction. That's the kind of function that they should fulfill. Timothy is to expend his energies in issuing authoritative moral direction to the flock under his charge. He is to command them, That was a term often used in military context. It means to give decisive, authoritative orders. Because the church is a pillar and buttress of truth, there are times the pastor will need to call the church to obey God's voice. We live in a world that says there is no ultimate truth. There is no truth connected to all people. But God's people know differently. There is one author of truth and he has entrusted the local church with that truth and therefore the leadership of that church should say, this is what God says. More positively is the word teaching. There's commanding, there's to be teaching of all of these matters. The pastor is to broker in the authoritative truth of God, instructing in the truth. Now. I don't think there's any call here for pastors to be obnoxious or to bully people with words by any means. But with a clear head and zealous spirit and broken heart, they are to graciously proclaim this is the Word of the Lord. They're not to specialize in suggestions. Pastors are to authoritatively declare and teach the Word of God. Secondly, They are to model a transformed life. There is the authoritative declaration of God's truth that is to be matched by a transformed life, verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy, probably in his late 20s or early 30s, our culture appreciates the energy and fresh perspective of young people, generally speaking. But in this culture, this is a great liability for Timothy to be this young. This is a culture, he's living in a culture where people revere age and experience. And here comes this young man coming into the assembly and telling people what to do and telling some to stop teaching what they're teaching. The things they find so intriguing, in fact, that are gaining for them a hearing among the people. They feel pretty important about themselves. They're teaching about the law. They have no clue what they're saying. They're leading people astray, but they really feel important. And here comes this young man into the assembly saying, you can't teach that anymore. It's a tough spot to be in. Timothy. Timothy, says the Apostle Paul, this is not about you. This is about the truth. And this is about the office. You have been placed where you are by God to tell the truth and to insist that the church protect the truth. Don't let anybody look down on you for your age. It's about the office and it's about the truth. So Timothy was to permit no one to despise his youth, not, though, by verbally demanding their respect. I have been placed here by the Apostle Paul. You will listen to me. Is that what Paul says? No. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on your youth but... Rather than letting them look down on your youth, rather set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That's how you demand their attention. Remember verse 8. Timothy is to exercise himself to godliness. Timothy is to set now a moral example for others to follow, or depending on how we translate the Greek word, to be a stamp upon the church itself, to stamp his moral example there on others. I've lost the name, but a young coach was hired here just recently to take on the Oakland Raiders. I think he's 34, if I recall. Now, I Read between the lines a little bit. and Let me tell you, there are thousands of football coaches in this nation that have put in their time and are way past 34 looking for that exact job. I mean, they're stacked deep. And here's this young man. They give the reins of this whole organization to coach this team to glory. What is going to happen this fall if he falters? Well, you can just smell it coming. I mean, the sharks are circling. If he doesn't make it, He's in big trouble, and you just note my word, take my word, or I'll predict it. I might be wrong, but I guarantee they'll start talking about his inexperience will be the reason that he's losing. What is it that's going to shut up the critics? One thing wins. He wins. Yeah, there will be a lot of jealous people in the wings, but it's all over because he's winning. Now, the local church, to use that as analogy, is not a team. It's not about winning. The local church is the people of God and it's about godliness. Timothy, silence the critic by your life. Live like Jesus would live and you'll win. This is the calling upon his life. We'll note here what it doesn't say. There's so much that is not given here by way of instruction. You've got to take the church forward. You've gotta develop some fancy strategy to do this perfectly. All kinds of things that people pursue so wildly are not mentioned at all. Timothy, it's your life. Leave the people at Ephesus with an example to follow, or perhaps stamp your example upon them. In speech, His speech was to be pure and gracious, kind and respectful and dignified. His tongue was to be free of gossip and lying, of manipulative, intimidating, harsh, crass, or selfish speech. There are times a spiritual shepherd must speak hard words, stern warnings, pointed rebukes, words of confrontation. But like his Savior, Timothy must bridle his tongue and speak the truth in love. Leave an example of speech. Leave an example in conduct. That is, his behavior in private and public is to be above reproach. People are not to look at the behavior of his life and think ill of the church or think ill of the cause of Christ or the gospel. Set an example in love. Going back to chapter 1 and verse 5, that's the whole package. That's what we're up to as Christian believers, to live a life of love. His life is to display the self-sacrificing joy that he finds in serving and caring for others. And Timothy is being called upon to do so in many ways in this Ephesian church. Does he live a life of love for others, or is it all about him? Live a life of love. Live a life of faith, he says. This may be faith in God, but I think more probably faithfulness, trustworthiness, tenacious fidelity to his duties as a servant of God. Live a life of faith. Live a life of purity. This is taken, I think, in a general sense, a purity of mind and actions and words and attitudes. But it is also used, in fact, in this book, in chapter 5 and verse 2, with a sexual nuance. To live in all purity in your relationship with others within the assembly. I attended a Brahms piano concerto recently. Got some schooling there to listen to that great work of art. And it featured a pianist who wore bright metallic green shoes. That was a stretch for me. He might be a paragon of virtue. I have no idea. I don't know the man at all. But you know, on that night, in that setting, what mattered was not his moral life, but that he was a master pianist, and he was just that. Now, I'd be easy to fool, I will admit, but he was good. That's all that matters. But again, the local church is not a concert. The local church is a gathering of the followers of Jesus Christ and character does matter. It is of utmost importance. What matters here is not entertainment skills, is not business skills as such, is not the ability, so to speak, to win. What matters is Christ-like character in a body that's been redeemed from sin by Christ, and is being transformed into the Savior's likeness. Those who oversee the church ministry must make sweet music with their lives. This is the high calling. It's what we all should expect. Writes Puritan pastor Richard Baxter to his fellow pastors, O sirs. He wrote a while back. O sirs, All your preaching and persuading of others will be but dreaming and vile hypocrisy till the work be thoroughly done upon your own hearts. Your flock will think that the pastor doth not speak as he speaks if he do not live as he speaks. And they will hardly believe a man that seemeth not to believe himself. They will give you leave to preach, In other words, you can preach whatever on earth you want to preach. They will give you leave to preach against their sins and to talk as much as you will for godliness in the pulpit if you will but let them alone afterwards. And live as they live. For they take the pulpit to be but a stage, a place where the preachers must show themselves and play their parts. a solid word of rebuke. Pastors are not to play act. They're to be living the godly life that they preach. Timothy must issue authoritative moral direction. He must model a transformed life. In verse 13, he must devote himself to the ministry of God's Word. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Until I come, assumes that Paul will be arriving soon, and perhaps even that he will assume these duties when he reaches Ephesus. But until that day, Timothy is to occupy himself with the Word of God in the assembly. Now hold on here, because this really distinguishes churches in our day. And we need to think of it clearly We need to give ourselves, you need to give yourself, Paul says to Timothy, to the reading of Scripture. This would involve the Old Testament Scriptures and to the writings of the apostles. Timothy is to diligently prepare to audibly read God's Word in the assembly. It's to make sure that that happens. It speaks of preparation. It speaks of purpose. God's words are to habitually echo through the chambers where the church gathers. This implies that the church is to attend the Word of God with care and with interest. What a joy it is to seek to simply obey this Word. We are getting fairly close as a church We haven't really said much about this, but maybe we'll do some celebrating, I don't know. But we're getting pretty close to the place as a church of having read the entire Bible through together in the assembly. We don't do that out of ritual or to congratulate ourselves with some great endeavor. We do it to obey this verse. Pay attention to the reading of the Word. May this be a place where the words of God are spoken are read aloud and take root in our hearts. Give attention, secondly, to the exhortation. This refers to the pastor's challenge to the congregation respecting the Word of God that is read. It may take the form of rebuke. It may take the form of encouragement. It may take the form of comfort. It depends on the context of the church and the context of the Scriptures. It is probably what we would call preaching. Some see this as a distinctive element within the service of the church, but probably what we would refer to as preaching. That is, there is an exhortation to do what the Word says. And then to teaching, which speaks of more formal instruction in Christian doctrine, less emphasis on the moral imperatives that flow from the Scriptures in application to the hearers, and more upon what the Bible says what it teaches, how we understand it and put it together. Mounts in his great and lengthy commentary says Timothy is to immerse himself in the biblical text, to encourage people to follow the text and to teach its doctrines. Timothy's lifestyle is to be characterized as a devotion to and an immersion in the biblical text. By saturating himself In the diligent study of God's Word, the pastor is then to lead the congregation to saturate themselves in the words of God as a spiritual family. It is the business of every local church to become a Word-oriented community. We all must work together to maintain this pattern, to be a Word-oriented community. There are thousands of things that Timothy's not called to do within the assembly. Obviously, there's things listed here that he must do. But he's not called to concoct slick marketing schemes, to devise entertaining dramas and skits, to compose trendy speeches that satisfy the ears of the culturally astute. I've been in attendance in a church and heard recordings of a preacher who... I listen to, I suppose, to keep my fear alive. But this man has the uncanny ability to preach the Word of God so that the person with a Bible gets something out of it and the person without a Bible gets something else out of it so that those with biblical knowledge hear the word, and those without biblical knowledge hear the word, and everybody walks out satisfied. It's scary. But there is a way of marshalling speech such that you can speak to everyone, and they all think that you're with them. And you may even have an open Bible. But I've listened to these words and I've said, Now, if I don't have a Bible, and I have no Bible knowledge with me, I can do just fine here. With Bible knowledge, I realize that the man is lacing in ideas that he never references, never brings to anyone's attention, and I get what he's talking about. But you see what happens with this kind of double speak? Everybody's happy. But no one is convicted. I appreciate the words of Mark Dever in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He says this, and I read at length, follow carefully. Living as we do after the fall, but before the heavenly city, we are in a time when faith is central. And so the Word must be central, because God's Holy Spirit creates His people by His Word. Hear that. God creates His people by His Word. We can create a people by other means, and this is the great temptation of churches. We can create a people around a certain ethnicity. We can create a people around a fully graded choir program. We can find people who will get excited about a building project or a denominational identity. We can create people around a series of care groups where each feels loved and cared for. We can create a people around a community service project. We can create a people around social opportunities for young mothers or Caribbean cruises for singles. We can create a people around men's groups. We can even create a people around the personality of a preacher. And God can surely use all these things in various ways. But hear it. In the final analysis, the people of God, the church of God, can only be created around the Word of God. A church is composed of individual Christians who hear the Word of God and continue to hear the Word of God, always being refashioned and reshaped by it, constantly being washed in the Word and sanctified by God's truth. I heard the comment last week as we talked about exercising ourselves unto godliness that some felt their toes were stepped on. That's called reshaping. We all need that. It is a process that God does in my heart every time I prepare a sermon a reshaping, a remolding, a conforming to the Word of truth. This needs to be part of a church's experience. We are not to gather together and simply agree on a few small points and go away thankful that we're all on the same page. We need to be reshaped by the faithful, consistent ministry of the Word of God, which is one reason why in this church we preach through books. I don't think you have to do that every week to be faithful to God. It needs to be a biblical sermon. But we do preach through books because there are things in books you don't want to say. There are things in books of Scripture that reshape me, that challenge me, that are a conviction to me. If all that I do is preach that which I find comfortable, I'm not going to be reshaped and you're not going to be reshaped. I said that how many times through the book of Luke? There are churches that cannot preach this. They'd empty out. Jesus says some hard things we don't naturally want to hear. We need to be faithful as a church to hear it all. The whole book from cover to cover as God gives us life and opportunity together so that this word is constantly washing and sanctifying us. Paul calls upon Timothy here, number four, to nurture his spiritual gift. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This phrase, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy, could be translated with prophecy, that is, if it's by prophecy, then the prophetic word bestowed the gift on Timothy. If it's with prophecy, Timothy's gift was being confirmed by attending words of prophecy. And I really don't know how to understand this. In fact, we're, we're troubled a bit by it because we don't know what on earth Paul's talking about. I think it is wrong, and I've read through some of the arguments. I think there's solid reason to believe this is not a pattern for ordination today in the church. There are things here that are unique to Timothy. There are also things here that we don't know. The idea does not seem to be necessarily that Timothy was given something unique or certainly given a particular position. This is dealing with some spiritual gift that was bestowed upon him in a situation we cannot reconstruct. So we need to consider that Timothy is probably somewhat unique here, but what we do see is the laying on of hands of elders and prophecy that confirms Timothy in his position, that is, in his work and in his gifting by God. He received a gift bestowed upon him by the Spirit which God gave for the advance of the church, and in a symbolic act of identification, blessing, and commission, a group of elders put their hands upon him. This was a way of identifying and blessing this man and saying we agree with the Spirit of God that he is cut out for this particular task. We see this very thing going on in Acts chapter 13, and I think that's probably a better parallel than the idea of contemporary ordination. We have probably the idea of a group coming together and saying Timothy is in fact chosen by God to attend with Paul and to carry on the gospel ministry that God has given to him. Timothy, let me say finally, says the Apostle Paul, diligently execute your office. With all of these things that I have said, to issue authoritative commands, to live as a model before the believers, to bring the word to bear within the assembly, to not neglect what God has given you, but to nurture it, perhaps a gift of preaching or teaching, but to continue to nurture that and work hard to grow so that others will see your progress. With all of that, Timothy, verse 15, practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pastors are to be passionate about two things here. The ministry of the Word in the church and godly living. This is the pastor's business. They are to absorb themselves in these twin pursuits. As George Knight says, to wrap themselves up in them. As Philip Towner puts it, to live and breathe these things, or fill in the words that you would like, but in some way to be obsessed with godly living and the ministry of the Word. This is their business. And as pastors pour out their lives for the good of the church, as they devote themselves to the spiritual growth of the assembly, their growth should be evident to the church, Paul says, verse 15, so that all may see your progress. It should be evident to the church. There should be a growing and deepening understanding of Scripture that is conveyed in the public teaching and preaching of the word, but also in private conversation. Pastors should be people who like the Bible, who like to think about the Bible, who like to talk about the Bible. They should be growing in godliness. It should be evident that God is changing their life and drawing them closer to himself. J.C. Ryle reminds us that the two are integrally related. Think on the understanding of Scripture and growth in godliness. Put those two together. He writes, "...the truth of God's written word is the primary foundation of the Christian soldier's character." He is what he is, does what he does, thinks as he thinks, acts as he acts, hopes as he hopes, behaves as he behaves, for one simple reason. He believes propositions revealed and laid down in Holy Scripture. It's that simple. A religion without doctrine or dogma is a simple impossibility. Faith is the very backbone of spiritual existence. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh, and the devil unless he has engraved on his heart certain great principles which he believes. And so it is for all of us. We live out our doctrine every day. You live out your doctrine every day. Your view of God and your understanding of His truth is revealed for everyone to see. Now, there's a lot you can keep under the lid until it blows off. But your doctrine is revealed in your life. Timothy, heed this instruction. Be passionate about your life and your doctrine. If pastors are to live as models for the church to follow. If the church is to see their spiritual progress, then pastors should, I think by way of application, live public lives. They should not be hidden behind some fence somewhere. They need to live out in front of other people. Many of us heard recently of the large megachurch pastor who was caught in unspeakable sin. And nobody had any idea. There's something wrong with that picture. He had apparently become, before thousands and thousands of congregants every Lord's day, a talking head who was living a lie that no one could detect. That's not right. The very same thing happens... In small churches as well. Whether a large church where one can hide behind the anonymity of many locked doors so that no one bothers them in their busyness, or in a small church where a man leads a double life, a private life, that no one is able to see, in either event, the individual is hiding and not permitting himself to be viewed by the assembly. This is wrong. Now, every pastor must draw lines for privacy purposes. You've heard of the fishbowl syndrome. And it would be possible to live in a fishbowl, and that would be harmful to his family and harmful to the church. But I think the point is to be understood. The shepherds of our church need to live among the flock so that wrong words, impure words, thoughts and actions, questionable conduct, and self-centeredness comes to the surface for all to see. Because this church and the ministry of this church is not about individual leaders. It's about Jesus Christ. We must all watch one another's life and doctrine. Now think of this. If Timothy is laboring for the salvation of his hearers, any argument there? The end of verse 16, he says it there very clearly. In so doing, by watching your doctrine and watching your life, you will save both yourself and your hearers. If this is the case, if he's laboring for the salvation of his hearers, and if that labor is defined as moral development and the faithful ministry of the Word, then I ask, What on earth is happening in churches where the leadership is not growing spiritually and the Word of God is not being faithfully disseminated and taught? What's happening there? Perhaps we're not wrong to fear that many Christians in gospel-affirming churches are headed straight for hell. And a refined, gracious, capable, winsome pastor is greasing the slide for them. We must stop and think carefully. The ministry of the local church and thus the occupation of the pastor is nothing less than the salvation of the souls of the congregation. Salvation is happening in this church on a regular basis. Understood in the right sense of the word, our souls are at stake in the ministry that we live out together. It calls upon all of us to pray for the elders of this church. I call upon you earnestly to pray for me. We are made of flesh. We are sinners. And we need your prayers. When this church someday Should Christ not return in time when this church someday chooses a new pastor, whether it's me or someone else that is left, or someone else is added, whenever this church would choose a pastor, may we know what to prioritize. It is godliness of life And it is purity of doctrine that matters above all else. We can't falter here. We can't go for the charismatic leader. We can't go for a certain skill set. We can't go after people for reasons that the business world would indicate to us or the entertainment world would indicate to us. If God would lead this church ever to add to replace a pastor, may we go after this. Godliness of life and purity of doctrine. We all must work together to that end. When you leave this church, some of you will move away. Some perhaps even for other reasons that you may leave. There's a fair number within this assembly that are simply going to grow up and move away from home and you will find another church. I plead with you when you move past this assembly, find a church that is word-saturated. I don't mean that they have a Bible and they preach from the Bible on Sunday, but I mean a church that is genuinely developing all of the teachings of Scripture, the hard ones as well as the easier ones. Not one where you can sit down and different people can hear different things from the same talking head. And you go, well, I know what he's saying. That's very biblical And that. No. A church that is word-saturated, where the word is read and it is preached and it is taught in all of its doctrines, in all of its books, as life allows. And as you leave this assembly... Seek out spiritual leaders that are following Christ. The issue is not merely what they can do. The issue is, above all, who they are. Eden Baptist Church is a tool in the hand of God for your salvation. May we work and pray and philosophize together such that it becomes an increasingly effective tool for the glory of God and our attainment unto the resurrection of the dead. And in all of this, what are we up to? It makes perfect sense if we see the vision of the Bible. What we're up to in all of this is to become like Jesus Christ. It is through His Word that He brings us into salvation. He is the living Word that comes and epitomizes the truth of God in flesh. And it is to this Christ and to His Word that we respond to saving faith, and then it is to the character of this Christ that we are to be progressing in our Christian walk. This church is to be helping us move closer to the likeness of Jesus Christ. So what is put here in terms very specific to the leadership of the church, Be growing in godliness as a model to the assembly. Saturate yourself in the study of God's Word and bring that orientation to the assembly. As this direction is given to the leadership of the church, this is no different than the orientation that we are all to have. The Word of God is to be supreme in our lives as it lights the path to godliness The Word of God is to be supreme in our lives as it leads us to live more like Jesus Christ. Are you growing as an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity? As we sing that chorus, may all who come behind us find us faithful. I struggle always to get through it because I think of the growing generation that comes up behind us. And I pray to God that they can look and say, We had pastors that loved God. We had spiritual shepherds that loved God and loved His Word. And I pray that for the children that follow. Mine and the children of this church, that we would leave behind an example, not of perfection, not of sinlessness, that's beyond any of us. All we can do is hide reality if that's the thing that we aim for, but that we would leave behind a genuine Christ-like pattern for them to follow. We must together pursue that task. When a church quits pursuing that task, it doesn't want leadership that is godly and word-oriented. It asks for leadership that is something else. And many times, in the providence of God, that's exactly what she gets. We must together grow in godliness and love for the word and maintain that environment as the family of God. May the Lord help us. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come into your presence as sinners, we come as those who speak is tainted, whose conduct is not what it ought to be, who lack the purity and the love and the faithfulness that should rightly flow from our lives as the followers of Jesus Christ. We lay our sin before Your throne and we ask in repentance, that You would cleanse our souls. Father, we long to be a faithful and godly people, one that touches this world and transforms it by the Gospel of Christ. I pray that our church would be word-saturated, that we would not grow tired of it, however, but grow to love it. Thank You for the doctrine Of the church. And thank you for the doctrine that the church exemplifies and protects and beautifies by its ministry. Father, help us do this faithfully. And I pray for anyone that has not come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I pray that you would bring them to embrace him, that in his death and in his resurrection, you would turn them to embrace Christ, to flee from their sin and the wrath to come. And God, I plead for every head in this auditorium. I plead in prayer that is earnest and zealous. I plead that each one, would attain to the resurrection of the dead. God, save us. We pray according to your will, for your glory, through Jesus. Amen.